Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's legislature wrapped up with some last-minute fireworks late last night and one surprising dud. Joining me now to take us through what happened are CPR's public affairs reporters, Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Hi, Benta and Andy. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Let's start with the dud, that is, what did not fire. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm referring to the governor's big land use bill. It failed, right? Yeah, and this was definitely the biggest surprise yesterday. Governor Polis originally introduced this bill back in March as this kind of sweeping, ambitious way to change how Colorado cities build housing by requiring them to allow more density, condos, duplexes in more residential areas. But it faced this huge amount of pushback from local governments, obviously from Republicans, and also from a lot of homeowners who really railed against it with their uh, lawmakers. Until last night, I think most people, I still thought it would pass in some form because it had made it almost all the way through the process. Mm. But at 7 o'clock, the lead sponsor in the Senate said that Democrats were just not coalescing basically around what the final version of the bill would be. They had these huge differences, and they just let it die instead of actually passing anything. Wow. What happens with the issue now? Well, Governor Polis tweeted afterward, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And, you know, it seems to be an indication, and there's plenty of other indications, that he plans to try again in a different form maybe next year. Well, what other policies were up in air yesterday? Were there other things in doubt at the very end? Um, I don't know that the passage of anything else was really in doubt in terms of anything big. But one of the last things to pass was this other big Democratic priority, which was their property tax Tabor reform package. It's this complicated plan to ask voters to lower property tax rates for the next decade, supposed to you know offset some of the rising property tax bills, but at the same time also shrink Tabor refunds and use Tabor refund money to offset the impact of shrinking property tax rates. Uh, Democrats were pretty unified on it, but it did draw strong Republican opposition. There was uh, an unsuccessful filibuster attempt in the Senate. Opponents tried to drag things out past the midnight deadline Mm -hmm. so that it would die, too. That didn't work. And in the House, Republicans walked out rather than actually taking a final vote on the bill. Wow. But the property tax plan did pass. It did. Uh, It'll go to voters this fall to decide. And I'm sure I'll be back here at least a couple times to explain it, because it's huge. Well, this all sounds highly dramatic. Benta, (laughs) is it common for big policies to come right down to the wire like this? That is common. It does happen every year, and that's for a variety of reasons. First of all, a lot of the bills move ahead in this later part of the session after the state budget is finalized. And then for some of these complex and big policies that Andy's been mentioning, there are so many negotiations and meetings that it usually does take until kind of the very end. And some proposals, like the property tax measure, that was introduced really late. So even though there was behind the scenes work for a long time, a lot of lawmakers weren't part of those discussions. And I heard complaints from members in both political parties about how they felt that was just rushed through. But what I would say about this session that was very unusual is that the House worked more weekends than ever before to make sure they got through all their bills. And on this final day of session, we saw a lot of frayed tempers, people were upset. And as Andy mentioned, Republicans physically left the Capitol and didn't return for the final votes. 
And then separately, tensions that have been simmering among House Democrats burst out into the open in literally the final hours. Tell me about that. What happened? A lot was going on here. First, some members, especially the Black women in the caucus, were frustrated with how their leaders, they say, have treated them, how they've handled some of the chamber's more conservative Republican members. They and some other lawmakers of color feel that certain Republicans have been allowed to get away with saying things that are racist, offensive, homophobic, and and haven't faced significant sanctions or kind of parameters around that. And so last night during a House Democratic caucus meeting, some members confronted House Speaker Julie McCluskey. It was very emotional, and it was unusual to hear people be so openly critical of their leadership. Here's Democratic Representative Leslie Herod. And we have been asking for help and support. When we don't stand up for people, they keep coming for the next person. When we don't shut it down at the beginning, it grows. And in a little bit different issue from that particular situation, and we've heard this throughout the session, but especially at the end, more progressive House Democrats have been unhappy because they just don't think their party is doing enough with the, the huge power voters have given them with the number of seats they have at the state house. And here's Representative Lorena Garcia. She's in her first year at the Capitol, and she told me she doesn't think Democrats are being bold. I think it's because of the Senate. I think it's just leadership in general. I think it's the governor. I feel like Democrats historically have really very much operated on a fear-based model. If we do too much, we're going to lose the majority. And that's so detrimental to actually being able to legislate and govern well. Do you think it will have any lasting impact on how Democrats work together? I mean, I think of all of this that happened, it's hard to say how it will ultimately play out. It was a tough moment of reckoning for the majority party that I think was unexpected and a bit of a shock that it happened in this open meeting in front of the Capitol press corps. But at the heart of this is how Democrats manage the process, handle contentious issues with the minority party, use the rules, their vision for policy and the party. I mean, we're heading next session into a presidential election year. Um, they have this historic supermajority, and there are a lot of different viewpoints and diversity. The speaker, McCluskey, you know, she said she wants everyone to succeed. I will lean in. I will do more. This place, this institution means everything to me. And when I fail, I fail. I am as human as everyone else here. Now, we've been talking a lot about democratic divides and what the legislature did in its final hours. Clearly some very dramatic hours. But as you look back over the entire four months, what do you think this year will primarily be remembered for? Oh, boy. I, I would say first and foremost, it's got to be gun laws. Democrats passed a really pretty significant package of stricter laws around gun possession. And that includes a three-day waiting period to purchase a firearm, includes raising the minimum age to purchase any kind of gun to 21, expanding the use of extreme risk protection orders, aka red flags, making it illegal to have a gun without a serial number, which is aimed at cutting down on these ghost guns that you hear about. Mm. And it's just a lot more gun laws than we've ever seen them really do in a single session before. 
And then Democrats also took some high-profile steps on abortion. Democrats passed laws to codify the right to abortion access, the right to transgender care, and to shield patients and providers from legal percussions from other states. Um, both of those issues, you know, abortion guns, those were very partisan votes. But I, I would note that in general at the state house, a lot of the measures are still very bipartisan, from you know updating open records laws to passing a balanced state budget. So you do see Democrats and Republicans working together fairly often. And were Republicans, which is a relatively small group, able to impact what got done besides just teaming up with Democrats on some bills? They certainly shaped the tenor of the debate and the length of debates, especially in the House. And when Democrats tried to move their most controversial bills through, Republicans filibustered, asked that these bills be read at length, another de delay tactic to try to slow things down. And uh, at some point, it seemed like, could this derail the session or some big priorities? But at the end of the session, House Minority Leader Mike Lynch expressed a lot of frustration with the whole process. And he said he was, quote, about done with this. And specifically with, with the property tax bill. He said he feels like the governor and Democrats just rushed this through um, to change Tabor refunds and reduce property taxes. We've been silenced all we can be silenced and they just keep doing it, especially at the last minute when they bring bills that were originated just this week. You know, and it it is a big scheme that the governor waited till the last minutes of session to pull this sort of big legislation. And I'll add, we'll be talking to the governor, I think, later this morning to get his perspective on how everything played out. Um, and also, just to answer your question, Sandra, Republicans were also able to shape policies indirectly by kind of holding firm against them with a land use bill. All Republicans were unified against it. That made it a lot harder to pass. And, you know, also in the Senate, Republicans worked with some Democrats to kind of moderate what happened to some of the big progressive priorities. Their votes helped ensure that stuff like rent control failed. Yeah. And in fact, I think a lot of the bills that Republicans really disliked did die. I'm thinking, you know, supervised sites uh, for drug use, a statewide assault weapons ban and a study on single payer health care. So the legislature is done for the year. Is anything still up in the air or is this it? Well, just because we know what bills have passed, what bills have failed, that doesn't mean we necessarily know exactly what will ultimately become law. And that's because Governor Jared Polis has the final say. The governor can decide whether to veto any of these bills. And based on past years and what we're hearing, he is likely to issue at least a handful of vetoes in the coming weeks. Binta, Andy, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. CPR Public Affairs reporters Benta Berklin and Andrew Kenny joining us to talk about the end of the state legislative session and what happens moving forward. When we come back, did you know there are dozens of foreign consulates right here in Colorado? After a short break, we answer a Colorado Wonders question. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. When it comes to diplomatic capitals of the world, cities like Washington, D.C., London, or Vienna usually come to mind. But one Colorado Public Radio listener wondered about Colorado's international ties. Turns out our state actually has dozens of foreign consulates. CPR's Caitlin Kim takes a look at the diplomatic corps that calls Colorado home. Okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, we got to get the family photo. Yeah, thank you. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow spent a recent Friday morning talking with Pavel Melendez Cruz, Consul General of Mexico in Denver. A member of Mexico's diplomatic corps, Melendez Cruz arrived in the state capitol earlier this year. The two ended their meeting by taking a photo. Their conversation touched on a variety of issues, from immigration to fentanyl. We believe having a presence in the city and having a relationship with authorities as the one we have with, uh, with Congressman Crow is, is fundamental to protecting uh, our citizens' rights, but also to uh, providing uh, essential services for our population. In Colorado, there are six consulates, one consular agency, and 31 honorary consuls as of March, according to a State Department spokesman. Sylvain Fabi has been Consul General of Canada, based out of Denver since 2020. So the work that you do in a consulate is very similar to the kind of work you would do in an embassy, except you do it for a subregion of a country. His subregion is the U.S. Mountain West, covering Colorado and four other nearby states. As for his job, there are political aspects. We will, both in the capital and in the regions, meet with political interlocutors, which could be elected officials, either at state level, city level, or or, or federal level to advocate for Canada's interests. There are economic and trade aspects. And Colorado is our biggest partner in, in the Mountain West. So Canada and Colorado trade in goods and services in 2022 was over 8 billion US dollars. Ranging from agriculture to energy, even precision optical and medical instruments. And the consulate from our neighbor to the north also promotes cultural relations. For example, the Cirque du Soleil from, from Canada will be um, in Denver in the summer. You'll hear about that soon. The Mexican consulate helped bring a giant traveling doll known as Lele to Colorado last month for the city's Summit of the Americas meeting. The doll is symbolic of Mexican culture and roots. But Congressman Crow sees a more tangible value of having foreign consulates in Colorado. Having the, the Mexican consulate so close uh, to the district and having the Salvadoran consulate in Aurora uh, really helps provide that direct service to, to folks who you know, travel back and forth frequently, who have family uh, uh, back home. That gets to a big priority for foreign consulates, to help their nationals traveling, studying, working, or living in the United States, what's known as the consular work of diplomacy. Everything from lost passports to visiting their citizens who are in U.S. jails or certifying legal documents. And you don't necessarily have to be a diplomat for that. So my name is Sissy Bush, Honorary Consul of Hungary. She helps Hungarians in Colorado and Wyoming. This is a volunteer position. Bush, a Hungarian-American, has a full-time job and is a mom of two kids. But a couple of times a week, she also fields calls from Hungarians with some questions. I like the part that I am able to help others and help them wade through some of the bureaucracy and, you know, and I, I like to stay connected to Hungary, too. In Colorado, there are honorary consuls from all over, including the Philippines, Austria and Mongolia. Unlike a real consulate, there are limits to what an honorary consul can do. 
For example, Bush can't issue passports or naturalization papers, but she can help people get started on the paperwork. The consulate general from Los Angeles will actually come to Denver to validate and process the applications. Bush learned about being an honorary consul from her father, who immigrated from Hungary and who had the volunteer position before her. He was very excited. He still helps me because there are some times where I'm like, oh my God, Dad, listen to this crazy story. And so it's nice that we can kind of still work together on some things. Um, but so he, I think he was very happy to kind of keep it in the family. And while there may not be the diplomatic soirees of Washington, D.C., Bush did get to attend Governor Jared Polis's inauguration. Ultimately, for many, it's about having a presence in an area of the United States where they feel they can help their nationals, share their culture, and do the most good. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to life in our state? Send us your questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. When we come back, a debate over balancing the value of art with cultural insensitivity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One big proposal for our big problems with water in the Southwest is to bring some in from a part of the country that has more of it. It rained like eight inches in one day. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On the latest episode of CPR's new podcast about the Colorado River, we explore the boldest idea of all. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Tonight, Opera Colorado performs Puccini's Turandot. It's a popular opera by a famous composer, but it raises questions about the value of art when it includes insensitive racial imagery, like yellowface and cultural appropriation. Opera Colorado tried to get in front of the controversy with community discussions and in the rehearsal room. CPR's Eaton Lane spoke with its leadership and the artists creating the production. Leading up to its 40th season closing production, Opera Colorado acknowledged and attempted to address the difficult questions about Turandot at a community panel discussion co-hosted by Rocky Mountain Public Media back in February. This first question from the audience that night demonstrated for some this opera inflicts deep pain. Mary Lee Chin had this to say as part of her comments to the panel. The other thing that asked was, what is the impact on the community? And it is the perpetrating stereotypes of the dragon lady. I believe there are also characters, like one is named Pong, and what is what are the other two? That is so reminiscent of the taunting that I received. And so when you have things like that, it really is a negative impact on the community. Gregory Carpenter is the general director and artistic director of Opera Colorado. He said it was important to have that conversation early. We would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that there is repertoire out there in um, that great canon of opera that present problems in in the um, social climate that we must focus on in in our our current day. Virginia has two operas that fall into that, that challenging category. And Turandot's one of them, Madama Butterfly is the other. And the lens through which we look at those operas today is very different than the lens we looked at those, to be honest with you, 20 years ago or back when they were written. And so part of acknowledging the challenge of putting on a production of Turandot 
was to have a community conversation and to open ourselves up to conversation, to question, and engage in a API community in a productive engagement exercise, I think is really what it what we were hoping to come out of that in which I think we accomplished that evening, which was to listen and to understand and then to say, how do we do our best job at mitigating some of the concerns of that community within the context of keeping this great opera that people love alive for the future? How did you wrestle with the question of this is a popular opera and it can do well for the financial health of your company, but it has these challenging components of storytelling and you can't necessarily find enough singers to cast it with, with the appropriate kind of representation? Like you would never do Porgy and Bess with a white cast. No, no. But we see Turandot with a white cast. How do you wrestle with all of that? You know, it is a, it's a huge challenge, but I think um, one of the, at least early on for me, was to say, how do we use a piece like this, which is fantasy? You know, there's, there's no historical fact of any kind represented in this opera. There's no specific uh, truth, you might say, in the way ancient China, ancient Peking is represented. It's a fantasy. It's, it's Puccini's vision through the lens of his fascination with chinoiserie or Orientalism, all, all those movements that came out of the late 19th century, early 20th century. You know, it's, it's, it's him projecting, you might say, an Italian perspective on what they thought ancient Peking was. Nobody had been to China. Puccini never went to China and actually experienced anything in person. So it was all fantasy. And I think that's what we've really spent more time focus on in this production is how do we strip away some of those things that they feel too real and too misrepresentative and move towards, let's create a fantasy here, a fantasy that Puccini envisioned, that it's just a world that is not a, a true representation of Chinese culture in any way, shape, or form. You know, it's always hard to cast, in general, any opera. It's both an art and a science. Uh, the art is very subjective, the art science. And the finite side is the the kind of known things that you have to deal with. And so, and Turandot, you know, set aside the representation piece of it. You've got to look at each of those roles, understand the vocal demands of each of those roles, and then say, how does, you know, where do we go to find people, singers, that can meet those demands? Aria Umazawa is the stage director for Opera Colorado's production. She came in to replace the previously named director about a year ago. You know, this is a very challenging piece for me personally. And I think uh, challenging discussions are happening in the opera industry generally about what responsible representation looks like in the operatic field, and particularly with these titles like Turindo or Cher Pearl Fishers or Madame of Butterfly. And I know in the, the case of this particular production, a lot of thought was put into how to downplay the potential harm of the representation in this production. I will say, I'm not sure that uh, we were entirely successful. We did what we could. 
but certainly I think this for this particular company, I think this show is being viewed as like a first step on a lot of internal work that needs to be done in the organization and a lot of relationship building that needs to be done with the API community in Denver moving forward. And certainly this one, you know, through sort of accepting these types of contracts, I've learned a lot about myself and my own values and how I will be governing by my career moving forward. I have very, very dear colleagues and friends who, for whom, who are uh, AAPI of various backgrounds who, for example, their dream role is Turindo or Butterfly that truly they really desire to engage with this. They feel inspired by the material in different ways. It resonates. It might've been the show that they saw that indicated to them that they had a place in the opera industry. It's complicated. I know uh, one good friend of mine who really wants to sing Chocho's Son, for example, and I sort of talk about how we are very aware of this, that title in particular, Madame Butterfly, and its place in the canon and its place in the broader narrative of uh, marginalization in North America. And yet there's something about the title that keeps bringing us back and job to say what that is for either of us. Um, but there's, there's something about it that keeps us, you know, wanting to dig in, wanting to understand, wanting to sort of contextualize ourselves as Asian people in North America in this very Western lens of Japanese culture. And it's it's confusing and it's admittedly a, a point of cognitive cognitive dissonance, but I would be, uh, I think it would be disingenuous to say that there isn't genuine interest from the AAPI community in engaging in these titles on occasion as well. Margaret Ozaki Graves is a soprano, educator, advocate, and a member of several AAPI community organizations. While she isn't in this production at Opera Colorado, they did invite her to be on the community panel. So being an opera lover and insider myself, I think I understand what a big leap that was for the company. Unlike a lot of other disciplines and other industries, opera is very early in its DEI journey. So uh, the fact that there are was a panel and that they invited Asian identifying people from across the community to participate is very significant. This is Martin Bakari's first production of Turandot, and it's one of his favorite Puccini operas. He says while the focus in the rehearsal room is on the work, they are aware and consider the difficult questions around the piece. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're constantly aware of this, um, even before our recent kind of awakening to the importance of all this stuff. We've, we've always been thoughtful of it. We're significantly more thoughtful of it now. I'm Asian, the director herself, she's uh, half Japanese. And so, I mean, we're thinking about this stuff, but I mean, uh, truth be told, this, this story, although it technically takes place in China, it is really more of a sort of mythical fantasy that is set in the undetermined past. So the idea of cultural appropriation is something that I personally am a little bit less concerned about with a piece like this mm -hmm. um, because it is highly mythical and fictional. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to sing my role and I'm, I'm not really making the decisions uh, that, that will really most influence people's views of whether or not we approach this in a sensitive or insensitive manner. Again, stage director Arya Umazawa. One really important way that we can 
benefit the audience, for example, is just naming the dynamics that are at play in this piece and building education and awareness around the history of this piece, both in its own right, Puccini's Puccini's last opera and all of that, and its its significance in the Western canon, but also its impact on communities at home um, in North America as well. And I think in a lot of cases, this is a, a great title to open up conversations about these things um, because it is so often performed. And finally, Opera Colorado's artistic director, Greg Carpenter, acknowledges that Turandot presents many challenges, but he says Opera Colorado is up to them. One of the things that I'm most proud of of this company is its resilience. In the most challenging of times, we don't put our head down. We face forward and we move ahead and we get creative and we make tough decisions. And in the best of times, we take advantage of everything that is in, within our grasp. And we do it with intelligence. We do it in service to our community. We do it with our patrons in mind and what, you know, understanding what they're expecting from us. And I think over the years, we have developed a great rapport with our audience and we've set a very high expectation and that's exciting and rewarding. It's also that's a challenge for the future of making sure we're always meeting that expectation. CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane speaking with Opera Colorado and its artists about Puccini's Turandot. It plays tonight, Friday, and Sunday. And we should note that Opera Colorado is a financial supporter of CPR News. When we come back, she joined the speech and debate team to improve her public speaking. Now she's a state champion in spoken word poetry, going for the national title. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the mountains, foothills, and suburbs, Colorado's magpies are a majestic sight, with striking white and black plumage that in certain light also shines with a cosmic blue-green iridescence, and elegant long tails extending well past what other birds think a suitable length. A reputation for thievery follows the magpie, but when it comes to stealing eggs, they do much less damage than house cats. To protect their own eggs, a breeding pair of magpies will engineer an elaborate domed nest, with a female taking care of interior finish. Like their crow and raven cousins, magpies are among the smartest animals in the world, solving puzzles and recognizing themselves in mirrors. Chattering at the edge of an open space, those magpies may simply be seeking solutions to territorial disputes, and thus do not call them a flock. As a collective, they are a parliament of magpies. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One in five computer science degrees go to women, but some Colorado high schools want to change that. This spring, 14 schools were recognized because girls made up more than half of their advanced computer science classes. Denver's Abraham Lincoln High School is one of them. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has the story. 16-year-old Van Nguyen, whose nickname is Kendi, didn't know anything about computer science. Nor did 17-year-old Grady Cabea, but she thought it seemed cool. Hazel Ochoa, 16, was interested in how multiplayer games were made. All three found their way into Yolanda Velasco's class, Advanced Placement Computer Science Principles. Okay. So what did you remember about abstractions? What is that? 
Grady was in Velasco's class last year. That was more than half girls. That's unusual. Girls made up half this particular class in just over 800 schools nationwide. That's out of more than 6,000. In the U.S., everywhere you look, there are male-oriented images of computer science. That didn't stop Grady from enrolling. I think instead of discouraging me, it kind of motivated me. Grady discovered computer science has a lot to do with creativity and practice. It's a skill that you learn, and through practice, you get better and better at it. It's not because this one kid is better at math or good at physics. All the outside factors, it doesn't really have anything to do with this class. She likes that there's no obvious answer that only the teacher knows. Instead, they both figure out problems as they go. It allows you to track your steps. It allows you to become very attentive and very observative of everything you do. Today, Velasco will introduce her class to the ASCII code. That's the first major standard using computer bits, zeros and ones, to represent a letter or character. But Velasco doesn't tell them about ASCII right away. She lets them struggle a bit. October 31, that's Halloween. Oh yeah, Halloween, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The class starts by guessing the meaning of a set of numbers. Hazel and Kendi get that right away. Then... I want that you try to create a code to represent these words. Half the class uses their code to translate a short phrase. It's stumping yeah. some of them. It's okay, just uh, translate it to your own code so you have... Oh, it's not spelling anything out. Yes, but uh, that's, yeah. the, that's the point, okay? Use your own code oh, okay. to translate this and see what happens. After some okay. confusion... D-A-D, what about the H? Oh, no. oh. H is okay. silent. Velasco <laughs> explains. It doesn't make sense because you have different codes. We are talking different languages, see or no? We already have the solution in computer science. Computer that solution is... The ASCII code, which Velasco presents to them in all its glory. See, I'm so smart. Velasco says she hasn't marketed the class to girls, but word of mouth helps. It also helps that she can flip into Spanish if needed. And for others new to English? Since we are applying some tools, some strategies in the class for them to manage the language in an easy way, they feel like comfortable coming through here even though they are English learners. Her own struggles becoming an electronics engineer in Colombia has made her a champion for girls. Because I was the only woman in technology in my university, you know? So um, that's something that I want to demonstrate to my girls here, that they can do it, no matter what. Having a woman teacher does help, says Hazel. Having a teacher with the same gender as you, it helps you connect better with them. So yeah, I think it, it really helps. Kendi agrees. It's easier to talk to them. You feel like, if she can do it, we can do it. At the same time, the class taught her that gender doesn't have anything to do with competency. If you're smart, then you're going to do good. It doesn't depend on your gender. It doesn't affect you at all. But for any student, AP computer science can be hard sometimes, super frustrating. Here's Hazel. When a problem pops up, what what's, what's causing that, how to solve it? and just thinking of a solution for it not to happen in the future. Grady has another method when she gets stuck. Cry for two minutes. There's absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with crying. Then Cry she comes back minutes. refreshed and ready to tackle the problem. Hazel says food helps. Eat, go eat yeah. something just, just to get my mind off it. These girls are going far. Hazel plans to study computer science in college. Kendi will study business. And Grady? 
medical school with a strong emphasis in computer science. I'm Jenny Brindine, CPR News. It's a big day for Hannah Cavetta, an 11th grader at Overland High School. She's representing Colorado as the state champion in the Poetry Out Loud National Semifinals in Washington, D.C. Colorado Matters senior producer Anthony Cotton visited with her during a recent practice session. On a recent afternoon at Overland High School in Aurora, Pam Ford addresses her speech and debate class. All right, we're going to take a break, guys, from the speeches. Uh, you have the poem that she's going to be reciting in front of you, Songs for the People. So as we are watching her perform it, you know that she will, he, she will be presenting in front of our nation's capital there. I want you to think about as she's reciting it, who is the narrator, what is the setting, and what is the message, okay? So you're trying to give her some feedback on what you have perceived from her performance. That way she can say whether or not she feels like the story is accurate. Does that make sense? Did you dye your hair? No, I did not <laughs> dye my hair. Okay, sorry. At the front of the room stands Hannah Cabetta. Dressed in a black t-shirt and jeans, she closes her eyes and takes a centering breath. Let me make the songs for the people. Songs for the old and young. Songs to stir like a battle cry, wherever they are sung. And not for the clashing of sabers, for carnage, nor for strife, but songs to thrill the hearts of men with more abundant life. Let me make the songs for the weary, amid life's fever and fret, till hearts shall relax their tension, and careworn brows forget. Let me make the songs for the little children, before their footsteps stray, sweet anthems of love and duty to float over life's highway. I would sing for the poor in age when shadows dim their sight of the bright and restful mansions where there shall be no night. Our world, so worn and weary, needs music, pure and strong, to hush the jangles and discords of sorrow, pain, and wrong. Music to soothe all its sorrow, till war and crime shall cease, and the hearts of men grow tender, girdle the world with peace. The poem she's reciting is Songs for the People, one of three Hannah hopes she'll be reading in the national finals. When she won the Colorado State Championship in March, Cabetta didn't include this poem. I decided to change one of my poems. I, kind of out of the way, it was kind of like a gut feeling. I was reading through poems and this one just like really spoke to me. Just the way that it wanted to, like this, the title of it is Songs for the People and just that immediately caught my eye. And when I read through it, it just, it felt like it was speaking to just everyone. It felt like something to be performed on a stage and I wanted to perform it on the stage, so. Ford asks Hannah's classmates to offer feedback as she tries to hone her performance. And they've got a lot of thoughts. I would pause. Pauses are such a big thing. Being able to pause for a while, like people really take it in. It has such a big definition. It defines your speech and who are who you are and what you're trying to say. And also near the end, just don't lose your energy because I feel like every time you get near the end, yeah. it just like it just like fades out. I would and I would only use that fading out when you say 
I would sing for the poor like that. Yeah. That's when you're like, I would do all these things like. Yeah, to show the song. But then you get more strong towards the second last two. Good. Good feedback. I also feel like you're like really tense in some of those uh, those kind of um, lines that are talking about like sadness and defeat, uh -huh. and I feel like. If you're trying to portray something of like sadness and defeat, you need to like lose the tension in your body. Okay. That's an interesting Peter kind of situation. You were chosen as the winner, but yet you still have to deal with your peers in the class who didn't win. And, you know, I, I guess I've got some kind of mean girls vibe <laughs> playing okay. in my head. I feel like it's a competitive speech and debate class and we like we all compete but it's not it's never been like not personally for me and I don't think for all of them about winning it's always been about improving like improving ourselves me personally I joined speech and debate to become a better speaker because like the year before I didn't have those skills like I couldn't speak in front of a classroom for anything so that's why I joined the class not to win but just to improve ourselves I think that Hannah's ability to take constructive criticism and really take it to the next level is one of her greatest attributes. Um, it's why she's grown so much over the course of this year from having literally never done speech and debate to winning up to second place in tournaments across the district. And I think that is in large part due to her ability to just appreciate everybody's input and kind of take it and then synthesize it for herself. I know that that opinion, uh, the class has a lot of opinions and they're very varied in that class. And so I think it's nice to get a widespread of what people are thinking so that she can see how her poem is affecting others to see whether the message she's trying to get across is being met by the audience members. I was wondering, might it be overwhelming, like too much input and too much information? Sometimes, like, especially when you have like conflicting like pieces of feedback, it's kind of hard to like understand like which one to use. So you kind of, I don't know, you kind of have to make like an executive decision. Like, what do I want to have portrayed for my poem? So how will you go about deciding that? Honestly, I usually I just like practice like using like diff the different like pieces of feedback, and I see like what works, what doesn't, what do I want, like what do I want to be portrayed, portrayed, and oh, I just kind of go over it and see what works and what doesn't. One of the reasons why Songs for the People resonated with Kabetta is because, as the child of immigrants from Ethiopia, she's lived it. I'm the oldest child in my household, so I find myself often having to be the voice for my parents in, like, in certain situations. And so I feel like this poem, like specifically for Songs for the People, I want to portray like not having it be a burden to speak for others, because... I don't know, speaking for like for my parents and like in my family, it's it's not something that what when I was younger I used to like I don't know, I felt like it was like a burden, like it was unfair, but like now that I've gotten older I was like, you know, my parents have done like so much for me, like this is my gift back to them in a way. It's also a poem about inclusion, something the residents in Aurora or Washington DC often find themselves fighting for. And along with Colorado and Overland High School, Cabetta's also repping Pam Ford and her fellow students in speech and debate. In fact, her entry into Poetry Out Loud, Ford says, was part of a class assignment with the winner placed into the state competition. I think 
you know, for the assignment, we tried to kind of make it as realistic as possible. I like to make class assignments that have world applications if I can, and sometimes that's hard in speech and debate. So I felt like this was a great opportunity because it allowed them to practice the performance elements of speech and debate while also being enrolled in a real competition. So I already had the guidelines of what they look for in the, in the rubric, and so I could just modify those to kind of meet what I needed for my classroom assignment. You know, her work ethic, to her credit, really helped her um, be strong in the competition in terms of accuracy and then her ability to really analyze the poems really came through in her performance aspects so that was really nice to see. In Washington contestants will be placed in three geographically based groups. Each will be judged on two poems with three contestants from each region advancing to the finals. One of the poems Cabetta recited before Governor Jared Polis and others at the state finals in Lakewood was what the Oracle saw. It made an impression on Sidney Fowler, a former Poetry Out Loud judge who was the coordinator of Colorado's competition. She just presented such a, I mean, intricacy, but also like strength. But it's quite a intimidating, declarative piece. Like the first line is, you will leave your home. Nothing will hold you. You will wear dresses of gold, skins of silver, copper, and bronze. And just the way that Hannah was able to embody the point of view of the narrator in this poem was so mature and, like, honest and determined. You know, you could see in the way that she was holding eye contact that it was, like, daring the audience to question the accuracy of her statements, her authority on the topic, it, it was hard to look away from. After the first two poems were read, Cabetta advanced to the finals, where her last selection was titled Truth Serum by Naomi Shihab Nye. We made it from the ground-up corn in the old back pasture. Pinch the scent of night jasmine billowing off the fence. Bumped it right in. That frog song wanting nothing but echo. We used that, stirred it widely, noticed the clouds while stirring, called upon our ancient great aunts in their long, slow eyes of summer, dropped in their names, added a mint leaf now and then to hearten the broth, added a note of cheer and worry. Orange butterfly between claps of thunder, perfect. And once we had it, had smelled and tasted the fragrant syrup, Placing the pan on a back burner for keeping sorrow lifted in small ways. We boiled down the, the lies in another pan till they disappeared. We washed that pan. Cabetta's performance in the state finals was made even more remarkable because, while she selected the poem, she admits that she didn't really understand it until just before she recited it in Lakewood. That admission led Ford to unsuccessfully stifle a giggle. Exactly. Because we were talking about it, it was like during break, and I was kind of like, tell me about your last poem, like, and kind of we were like, let me, I just wanted to like help her make sure that she like had what she was going to do for it ready, and so she was telling me about the poem, and I like pulled it up on my computer, and she was just like. You kind of just worked it right and there. I, yeah, she, we just like kind of did a quick session of what we just did, and I was just like, so tell me what's happening, and she's like, well, she's like making a serum, and I said, are you going to make one, and she's like. Yeah, I'm just going to, like, put stuff in the pot. And I was like, yes! Like, and it was just crazy how it just kind of all came together. 
Cavetta is hoping that the only drama that takes place later this week occurs on the stage, and that after What the Oracle Saw and Songs for the People, she'll once again get the chance to recite Truth Serum. Hannah says she never expected to reach the state tournament, but once she got there, her main concern was just trying to have fun. It's the same attitude she hopes to carry with her to Washington, D.C. I still get super nervous, like, before, like, speaking in front of, not even, like, in front of my class. I still get super nervous, but I don't think I let that, like, stop me anymore. Like, I don't let it hinder my ability to do it. I kind of just... I got up there and I powered through it, whereas before I would stutter, I would nervous, I would quiet my voice. So I feel like it's not necessarily that I'm not nervous anymore, but I now have the skills to power through it. I don't know, I I'm kind of like performing because I get to show like another side of me. You know, not only do I get to show another side of me, I get to show like, I get to describe something to other people through my words and my actions. So I think now I'm much more okay with it. That's Hannah Cabetta speaking with Colorado Matters senior producer Anthony Cotton. Hannah is a 16-year-old junior at Overland High School in Aurora. She will represent Colorado tonight at the Poetry Out Loud National Semifinals in Washington, D.C. Before we go, we're heading into Mother's Day weekend, a time to celebrate mom, but also the time of year when we traditionally start planting flowers and gardens in the spring. In the age of climate change and water restrictions, what do you want to know about spring flowers, native grasses, and even plants that might attract pollinators like butterflies, bees, and hummingbirds? Email us your questions at coloradomatters@cpr.org or leave us a voice message at 303 303- 871-9191, extension 4480. Master Gardener Fatima Ahmad joins us Thursday on Colorado Matters with her insights on spring planting season. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.